focus on you guys. Looks like, uh, looks like I'm the scripture reader today, so we're all good. I've got a Bible, so we can do that. <laughs> all right, well, let's do that while you're standing. Scripture today is John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booth was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I don't get to preach, uh, you know, week in and week out, but it seems like every time I get to preach, there's some sort of like funny comedic thing that happens, um, you know, like me being the scripture reader. I think last time I preached, someone gave me a wonky, like, uh, music stand, and so it was twirling around on me. I had to, like, go grab another one, so it's all good. Um, all right, so uh, my name is John Crawford. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to be with you guys this morning. We will continue in our series, Love Walked Among Us. I believe that this is week six. Um, just want to give you guys an update on Ricardo. In case you weren't here last week, you probably don't know that he's in Nigeria. So he's in Nigeria for two weeks. He's out there with uh, Dave Goffney, who's our lead pastor of Redemption Tucson. Um, and they are out there specifically working with a church plant called the City Church. Um, pastor named Femi was here a year ago. Some of you guys may have remembered him. But um, we are supporting and partnering this church plant in Nigeria in Lagos, and um, not Lagos like the building blocks, but I think you say it Lagos, I don't know, it's L-A-G-O-S. Um, so Ricardo's there, he's, uh, he texted me yesterday, said his trip is actually going really well, he's really encouraged uh, by what God's doing there in the city, having a great time, and he's actually preaching um, at their Sunday services, I don't know if that's already happened, if they're ahead of us or what, maybe one of you guys might know, but he's preaching um, at the church plant there. So he will be back next Sunday with us, um, so just... Please keep him in your prayers as he travels. Pray for him. Pray for his family. He's gone for two weeks, so um, he'll be back uh, next Sunday. All right, so uh, we're going to dive in here. Um, my wife and I have three little boys, and during this last holiday season, from about the week before Thanksgiving until the week after New Year's, we found ourselves in this season of perpetual sickness like the domino effect for those of you that have kids or that have been around kids. One kid gets sick, they all get sick, one gets well, but the others are still sick, and then it seems like it's this cyclical cycle. And so uh, we went through this season of about seven, eight weeks where we just had terrible sickness in the house, not like just sniffly noses, but really con contagious, nasty sickness. And so during this time, we found ourselves um, getting a second home. We didn't buy it, though. It's the pediatrician's office. Um, and so we found ourselves at the pediatrician every week, multiple times a week even, and um, I lost count how many times we were there with our three boys. And so um, on one of our last visits to the pediatrician's office in December, um, comes time to pay, and I go to pay, and the office manager approaches me 
and she says, Mr. Crawford, you, you actually don't need to pay today. So I'm thinking, hey, this is great. My frequent flyer miles have added up, and this one's on them. Like, it's free, or they've got some hidden punch card. It's like, hey, if you come here 10 times in the month, we've got the mercy rule. You don't have to pay. And then I realized uh, it's the medical industry. It doesn't work like that. Um, so get, get the uh, office manager that's telling me, hey, you don't have to pay. And so I'm kind of confused. And she went on, proceeded to tell me that uh, one of their other patients had given a large sum of money to the practice to pay for a bunch of people's medical bills, and we were one of the recipients. So I was like, wow, you know, this is, this is amazing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked, I'm surprised, kind of taken back, like, wow, really? And I think what was more surprising was that this was actually an anonymous act. It was an anonymous act of kindness, and I think that that made it that much more powerful, because the person who had given this large sum of money and had done this wasn't there. They weren't there with some, you know, it's not the bait and switch, hey, we, we gave all this money, it's our business, here, come check us out. Um, they didn't have every news channel present recording this, right? It's during December, it's the holidays, every news station locally would have loved to pick this up and highlight them, and their, their name could have been everywhere. It wasn't posted all over social media, because what the office manager told me was that this patient of theirs that had given this money actually wanted to remain anonymous. And so the act of kindness, clearly because of the anonymous person, the act of kindness wasn't for self-promotion. It wasn't for self-promotion at all. It wasn't to make themselves look or feel good necessarily for the world to see, but this act was genuinely for the sake of other people in which we benefited from. We were the recipients of this. And so today, as we look at Jesus, we are going to see how Jesus' love is not interested in self-promotion, but his love is always for the sake of other people. So far in our series, Love Walked Among Us, we have seen Jesus clearly do things out of his love. We've seen him raise a man from the dead. We've seen him restore sight to the blind. We've seen him forgive a woman who is sinful. We've seen him heal a man with a withered hand. And then last week, we heard that Jesus actually protected a woman that was accused of adultery. But this morning, it's actually going to be a little bit different because we are going to see Jesus clearly not do something because of his love. As we come to this passage today, John chapter 7 we're going to zero in on Jesus and his love, and we're going to see three things. Our three main points that we're going to see in this passage is that love disappoints people, that love depends on God, and that love delights in sacrifice. Will you pray with me before we jump in? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we get to gather together as your people to worship you corporately. Lord, even thinking about Ricardo in Nigeria and the church there, Femi and the city church, Lord, that we gather universally as your people to worship you, Lord. This is not just something that we do here in Tempe, and it's often easy to forget about our brothers and sisters around the world. And so I pray for Ricardo and Dave and the church there in Nigeria, for Femi and the team, Lord. I pray that your spirit would continue to do a great work in that city, that you would protect Ricardo and Dave as they travel and bring them home safely, Lord. I ask that you'd be with us this morning, that your spirit would speak to us, that your spirit would stir our hearts and our affections as we see the way that you love Jesus, that you would speak through me and remove me as an obstacle. Lord, we thank you for this time. It's in your name. Amen. 
All right, if you need a Bible, please raise your hand. Our ushers are going to make their way down the aisles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, please keep this Bible. It's our gift to you. Um, we want everybody to be able to have a copy of God's Word to grow in your understanding of the Gospel and love for Jesus. All right, so pick up with me in chapter 7. We're going to look here starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths is at hand, was at hand. And so here, verse 1, Jesus is in Galilee because the Jews are seeking to kill him. We heard two weeks ago when Ricardo preached on the man with the withered hand, Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath and the Jewish leaders are enraged because of this, and they're actually seeking to kill him. Well, Jesus is at it again, doing what he does, and he heals someone else in John chapter 5, once again on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders are seeking to kill Jesus, and they're enraged. And so what Jesus does in order to avoid death, he actually goes to Galilee and chills out there for a while, and he continues his kingdom ministry in Galilee. And most commentators would say that it's about a year of time in between John 5 until where we pick up today in John chapter 7. So Jesus is in Galilee for about a year. And then it says that the Feast of Booths was at hand. It's important that we understand what the Feast of Booths is um, because it kind of frames the whole passage here today. And so the Feast of Booths is also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Ingathering. And this was an annual feast that took place during the autumn months and it was a festival that celebrated the harvest, the crops that God is faithful to provide for his people. And so they would celebrate the harvest at the end of the harvest. But not only did they celebrate the harvest, this festival also commemorated Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness where God provided for them. He provided for them faithfully when they lived in temporary shelters in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. And so this festival actually commemorated how God had faithfully provided for them. And so the Feast of Booths was a week-long festival with a huge celebration on the eighth day. And the interesting thing about this festival is that it is one of the big pilgrimages for the Jewish people. So there would be tons and tons of Jewish people that would flock to the city of, Ju uh, of Judea specifically for this celebration. So the population in the city would swell and would be enormous for this festival. It's estimated that there would be roughly about a million people that would gather together to celebrate this. A million people is kind of hard to think in one, in one area, so it would probably look something like this. Minus all the technology. Um, but this is New Year's Eve in Times Square where every New Year's Eve, a million plus people gather together to celebrate the New Year. And so you can see that there are tons and tons of people there. Obviously, it would look different because the Jewish people would actually build uh, temporary shelters made out of branches. So if those people were all in tents made of branches, it might look a little similar. But the point here is that there's a ton of people that are in Judea for this, for this feast, for this festival. Let's continue on here in verse 3. So Jesus' brothers, so his brothers say to him, leave here, that is Galilee, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers, his own brothers, believed in him. You see, 
Jesus' brothers want him to leave Galilee and go to the Feast of Booths, where there's going to be all of these people, and the reason why is because they want Jesus to prove himself to them. They want Jesus to prove himself by performing miracles in front of the masses because they don't believe that he's the Messiah. Not only do they view this feast as an opportunity for Jesus to prove himself, but they also view it as an opportunity for him to become famous in front of all of these people. If Jesus is healing and do miracles, he will make a great name for himself. So they say to him, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. You see, Jesus demonstrates his love by not doing something. He demonstrates his love by not meeting his brother's demands, and in that, he demonstrates his love by disappointing them. You see, our first point today is that love disappoints people. The problem is, if Jesus had gone to the feast based on his brother's demands, you see, if Jesus went to the feast and performed miracles in front of the masses, his miracles would actually not be loving, because they'd actually just be a manipulation for power a move for self-promotion, or a move for fame. But that's not what Jesus is about. See, Jesus' miracles are always an expression of his love for people and not for promotion of himself. If Jesus wanted fame, he would have used people. If Jesus wanted fame, not only would he have used people, he would have used people that were vulnerable, that were on the margins. He would have used people that were in need of healing for the sake of his own fame. If Jesus wanted people, he would have wanted fame, he would have used people. But Jesus doesn't use people to gain power. No, that's not how his love operates. Jesus always uses his power to love people through doing his mighty acts of mercy. You see, since Jesus' brothers don't believe in him, they actually mock him. And you can hear in verse, in verse 4 and 5, there's actually a mocking tone where they say, if you do these things, then show yourself to the world. They're mocking Jesus. And as as Jews, his brothers would have had this expectation of a Messiah. Because we sit here and say, man, how could they mock the Messiah, their own brother? But his brothers were Jewish, and they had an expectation of what the Messiah would look like, what the Messiah would be, that the Messiah would have a ton of military power and political power who would come in and overthrow the Roman powers that were oppressing them, that, that this Messiah would be powerful with military might. But Jesus doesn't fit the expectation. You see, it's kind of like if you've ever watched a movie trailer and you expect that the movie is actually going to be similar to the trailer. Um, maybe this has happened to you, maybe it hasn't. But sometimes you watch a trailer and then you end up going to see the movie and you're like, wait, is this the same movie? Because I'm pretty sure the trailer depicted it as something else. So this happened a couple weeks ago. My wife and I, we rented a movie on Amazon, um, and uh, we watched the trailer first. We were seeking a romantic comedy movie, um, and the trailer portrayed it as a romantic comedy movie. We rent it. 20 minutes in, we're looking at each other like, man, I don't think this is like the same movie, because this is not funny, and it's not romantic, and nothing about it is like the trailer, but the actors are the same, so it must be the trailer. And uh, about an hour into it, we're like, man, this is depressing, dark, and sad. This is definitely not the genre that it was depicted to be. And I don't even remember the name of the movie because we turned it off. So, um, but Jesus doesn't fit their expectation. And on top of him not fitting this expectation, 
just before this, at the end of John chapter 6, many of Jesus' disciples actually bail on him. They bail on him and they stop following him because he says some difficult things. And they're scratching their heads saying, man, Jesus is saying some tough stuff. I don't know if we want to stick with this guy because Jesus is actually talking about them eating his body and drinking his blood. And they don't understand what he's saying. And so instead of following him faithfully, they actually bail on him and they abandon him because they didn't understand what he was saying. And so his brothers not only see that he doesn't have political power, but they also see that a bunch of his followers just abandon him. So surely he can't be the Messiah. And so they mock him. You see, the brothers, actually, what they were desiring for Jesus to do was to go to the feast and make a big public display in front of the million-plus people. And the interesting thing about this is that their desire and what they want of Jesus actually mirrors Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. In Luke chapter 4, there's three temptations that, Jesus tries, that Satan tries to tempt Jesus with, and the third temptation that Satan offers him is to go to the highest point of the temple and to make a public display. You see, what the temptation, what Satan's temptation actually targets is the identity of Jesus. Satan is tempting Jesus' identity and targeting, targeting his identity in the same way that his brothers are now mocking his identity. You see, they want Jesus to believe that he is what other people think of him. You are what people think. But Jesus doesn't need to prove himself to his brothers. Nor does he need to prove himself to anyone else because he knows his identity full well. Because his father has affirmed his identity in his baptism when he says, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus has nothing to prove. You see, you and I, all of us in this room, are people who struggle with identity. We want an identity. We search for identity. We will look to every place we can to try to find identity in the things that we do, in what people think of us, and this makes us exhausted. It creates anxiety. It ultimately leaves us feeling hopeless and depressed. But in Christ, God gives us the identity that we're all searching for. It's an identity that's permanent and it doesn't change. We are his sons and daughters, and we are fully loved and fully accepted. And this frees us. This frees us from the approval of other people. We are no longer what people think of us. And because this frees us, this actually frees us to be able to disappoint people. So the question I have for us this morning is, who are the people in your life that you need to disappoint in order to be faithful to God? Maybe it's in your workplace, you have a coworker or a boss that is pressuring you and wanting you to participate in immoral business practices so that you can meet your numbers. Or maybe, say you have a boyfriend or girlfriend that's pressuring you and wanting you to have sex with them. Or maybe you have a family member that's wanting you to be deceitful and lie about other family members during an unhealthy family conflict. Or maybe it's when you're with your friends that are all politically aligned and think exactly alike, the same political ideology, and they want you to participate in hateful speech that is divisive against people on the other side of the political spectrum. The scenarios are endless. They go on and on and on. But here's the thing that we need to know, is that as we seek to follow Jesus faithfully, there will be times 
when we will have to disappoint people in our lives in order to love. Second thing we're going to see today, our second point, is that love depends on God. Pick up with me in in verse 6 here. So Jesus said to them, his brothers, he says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. So Jesus knows that his time has not yet come, but how does he know his time? How does he know that his time hasn't come? Because he depends on the Father. If you flip to the left here, one or two pages, depending on what Bible you have, if you go to John chapter 5, we're going to look at two verses, John 5, 19, and also John 5, 30, they should be on the screen here. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what the Father, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. In verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus depends on the Father. He knows his time because he depends on the Father. He knows the Father's will because he's united to the Father. He talks to the Father and he communes with the Father. He's able to depend on the Father to show him all that he does and is doing. Jesus doesn't do anything apart from the Father, and Jesus doesn't do anything on his own authority. Whatever the Father does, Jesus does likewise. Ultimately, Jesus depends on the Father to love. In the same way, it is impossible for us to love the way that Jesus loves without the Father. It's impossible for us to love the way that Jesus loves without depending on Him. So the bigger question is, how do we depend on God? It's the big question. With a very simple answer, we pray. Prayer is how we depend on God. And I know to some people that might seem like a very cliche Christian answer that's almost too simple. But let this sink in. Unless we rely on the power of prayer, we rely on self-dependence. Unless we rely on the power of prayer, we rely on self-dependence. We either rely on God or we rely on ourselves. Those are our only two options. In his book on prayer, there's a guy named Ronald Rollheiser that that wrote a really helpful, simple book on prayer, and he says this about prayer, and I really think it's helpful. It should be on the screen here. Prayer is a question of unity and surrender, of uniting one's will to God's and surrendering one's will to God. Prayer is the desire to be in union with God, especially in union with God's will. See, as we pray, we surrender. Prayer is the surrendering of our will to God's will, and this is how we depend on him. This is why prayer is how we depend. But if we're honest, many of us really struggle with prayer. We struggle with prayer for a variety of reasons. Maybe for some, maybe for some of us here this morning, we struggle to pray because maybe we've never actually prayed. Maybe for some of you, you just have no idea how to pray. Maybe for some of you, you pray, but the distractions of your schedule in life hinder your prayer life and your time with God. Maybe for some of you, you pray all the time and you pray frequently. But a lot of us have questions. Sometimes we feel like God 
doesn't hear us. We think he's disinterested, that he's this distant God that's not interested with our daily lives. Or maybe you've prayed to God before and you feel like God hasn't answered. Or maybe you believe that God is sovereign and he's in control of everything, so why, why do I even bother praying? But at the, at the core of all of our struggles, the core of the struggle is not all of those questions. Those things are real, absolutely. But at the deepest core of our struggle to pray, it's that we believe that we can actually be autonomous. As Americans, our deepest idol is autonomy. We strive to be self-sufficient in everything that we do, and we actually pride ourselves upon it with our catchy slogans like, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. We think that we can be autonomous, and this isn't just narrowly defined to something Americans struggle with. Absolutely, Western culture in America struggles with it, but this is pervasive throughout humanity. And it's actually so pervasive throughout humanity, we can trace it all the way through humanity back to the beginning. We can trace it to the garden, to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. You see, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and they rebelled against what God had declared good for humanity and the world because they desired autonomy. They wanted to be their own gods, and they wanted to live apart from God and rule and reign their own lives apart from God. Their sin was that they were seeking autonomy. And we do the same thing. You see, if you've been around kids, if you've had kids, even if you don't have kids, it doesn't take you long to be around kids to realize that this is in our nature. We don't have to teach kids how to desire to be autonomous. They all want to be in control from a young age. They want to be the boss. They want to be in control. They ultimately want to be their own gods. It's one thing that I'm working with my boys on all the time is you're not the boss. You're not in control. You aren't. You aren't God. But they think that they can be. And this is in us. You see, what we all fail to see is that every one of us is dependent on God whether we actually acknowledge it or not. God gave us the ability to get out of bed this morning to come here. God gave us the breath in our lungs that we just breathed in with. It's God. We need God to sustain us. The problem is that we actually don't always acknowledge him for such. And if you think about insulin, think about insulin for a minute. I often don't because I don't have diabetes. But think about it. We all depend on insulin. But when our pancreases work properly, we often don't realize our need for insulin. But for someone that has diabetes, they realize that they depend on insulin for life. And God is like the insulin for every one of us. We rely on him whether we realize it or not. You see, the problem is that when things are going well for us in life, we actually think that we can coast on our own. When things are seemingly going well, we think that we don't need God. We think that we can rule our own lives. But there has to come a time in every single person's life when we acknowledge our dependence and we surrender to him. You see, throughout my life, the people that I have seen depend on God the most are those who are suffering or have suffered. Those who are suffering physically, whether they have bodily ailments and they're sick. Those who are suffering emotionally with past trauma. Those who are struggling financially with money and funds, whether they're living at 
the poverty line or below poverty and they're having a hard time getting by due to lack of resources, those who are psychologically suffering with mental health, those who are relationally suffering in marriage or with family. You see, people who suffer realize they're not autonomous and they realize that they can't do it on their own. They acknowledge their need and they surrender to God. And because we see this, we see this in the rock-bottom moments of life, right? Where people come to the end of their rope. People come to the bottom, and they hit the bottom, and they realize, when people hit the bottom, they realize that there's freedom in surrendering. You see, the reality is that we were all created to depend on God, and God is our good Father. And as we do this, as we depend on God, we actually experience freedom we experience the freedom that exists in dependence instead of the bondage that exists in self-reliance. If we want to love the way that Jesus loved, we have to surrender to God and be united to him. And this happens as we pray. So the simple, cliche Christian answer of depending on God through prayer, this is why the only thing that we can do is surrender to God. And that is what dependence looks like. So here's a snapshot just kind of into my life and my journey with dependence um, about eight years ago, when I started to lead and, and disciple people, I can honestly say that I wasn't depending on God, which is actually really sad, right? Um, I was depending on knowledge, and I was depending on theology. The result was that I talked all the time. I'm an extrovert naturally already, so I like to talk. But this specifically, I was talking all the time because I actually thought that I needed to have all the answers. I thought that you could actually attain all the answers, and then you needed to talk all the time because you needed to teach all of these answers. And throughout the years, as I've learned how to depend on God, I've learned to surrender. Surrender to Him in prayer, and this has changed the way that I live, the way that I lead, the way that I participate in ministry, because dependence has actually made me learn to listen. As I pray, depend on God, I've learned to listen to the Holy Spirit in prayer, but more than that is I've also learned to listen to people. And it's interesting because we see the way of Jesus is the way of listening, right? Jesus listens. We see it in this passage. His brothers have unbelief. They're actually mocking him. Jesus doesn't preach a sermon to him. He doesn't walk them through all the Old Testament passages that point to him. He listens to him. He listens to him. And James 1.19 says, be quick to... Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, right? This verse has actually made a lot more sense over the number of years that I've learned to depend on God because I can actually be quick to listen and I can be slow to speak knowing that listening is actually a form of loving people. I don't need all the answers because life is messy. Life is messy and this is not my mission anyways. It's not my mission that I get to invite God to participate in. No, this is God's mission that he invites us to participate in. This is what dependence does. It forms us more into the image of Jesus. And as we're formed more into the image of Jesus, we actually learn to delight in sacrifice. Our last point this morning is that love delights in sacrifice. We'll pick up in verse 6 again. So Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. 
after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So Jesus' brothers saw this feast as a time for fame, for Jesus to get famous by doing miracles. But Jesus knew that his time had not yet come. And his time was coming, though, but it wasn't for fame. His time was coming, and it was for crucifixion, where he would free people from the bondage through his death and resurrection. You see, due to Jesus' dependence on the Father, Jesus cared more about his mission than his social status, and it enabled him to do the greatest act of love in the world. Jesus tells his brothers that the world cannot hate them here, but then he says that the world hates him because he testifies about it, that its works are evil. The reason why the world can't hate his brothers is because this passage in John 7, 1 through 9, actually is a picture of unbelief. The world can't hate Jesus' brothers, Jesus tells them, because they're actually an example of the world due to their unbelief. But the world hates Jesus because Jesus' kingdom stands in direct opposition to the powers of darkness that grip the world. But Jesus doesn't go to the cross begrudgingly. Because of his great love, Jesus willingly went to the cross to suffer for the sins of the world, even though the world hated him. Jesus delighted in the cross because he knew what was to come. He didn't delight in the actual anguish and physical pain, but he was able to delight in the cross because of what was to come, the resurrection. Because in his resurrection, he would overcome the powers of evil and liberate his people from their bondage to sin. He delighted in the cross because it was for the sake of others, because it was for the sake of the world. You see, the more that you and I, the more that we depend on God through prayer, the closer we are tethered to him, the closer we become to him, and the more we are able to love like him. Jesus calls us to participate in his mission in the world as he redeems and restores, but it can be messy. This can be messy, and this can be very difficult, and at times it's even painful, but love isn't convenient, and love isn't comfortable, but Jesus calls us to enter into the difficult places and hard spaces in order that we can love. But if we're left to our own devices, seeking to be autonomous beings, we won't willingly enter into these areas to love and to live faithfully. The only way that we can truly love like Jesus is by surrendering to God in prayer. Because prayer is how we depend on God. Prayer is the antidote to self-dependence. Prayer reorients our lives to Jesus and his kingdom, and prayer enables us to love the way that Jesus loved. So as we close this morning, I have one so what for us. You can probably guess what it is. It'll pop up on the screen. Our so what is to pray is that we ought to be a praying people, that we have a God who hears our prayers, and that this is how we can surrender and rely upon him is through prayer. And so there's three little pointers and tips that are helpful because there's a ton of people in this room, and all of us are on different areas, different spectrums in in our journey with Jesus. Some of us maybe have never prayed. Some of us simply don't know how to pray. Some of us pray all the time, Some of us just get distracted. The first pointer is to start somewhere and grow. If you've never prayed, then maybe the Spirit is actually speaking to you, drawing you in this morning to surrender. If maybe you've just become distracted 
You can start and you can grow. Even for the person that prays all the time, every day, frequently and fervently, we can still always grow. Because prayer is how we depend on God. We can never depend on God enough. In fact, I've never met anybody that says, I pray too much. It's just not something I've ever heard. You physically can't if prayer is how we depend on God. We either depend on God or we depend on ourselves. The second pointer is that the best way to learn to pray is by praying. Books are helpful. There's helpful things. There's classes. There's things that we do here at Redemption to help people know how to pray. But the best way to learn how to pray is by doing it, by praying. God is our good Father. We can come to Him as His kids. When you think about kids and the way that they talk to you, their parents, whatever, what do you think about? Distraction. It's chaotic. It's emotional. They oftentimes don't make sense. They use small words, not big elaborate words. They're all over the place. It's like ADHD, right? It's just do 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 The beautiful thing about God being our Father is that we can actually come to Him as kids. There's not a method or a formula that we need. We don't need big theological words to be able to talk to God. Part of surrendering to God is being able to be honest to Him. You can talk like a child to God and He understands. And the last way, last pointer here is to find other people, find other Christians to pray with in community. Following Jesus is not something we do individually, as individuals. Following Jesus is something we do as the gathered body of Christ communally. We do it as a community of people. As you pray, you need other people to pray with you and pray for you. You need to pray with people and for people to encourage each other to seek the face of God and surrender to Him daily because we're prone to wander. And so as we close this morning, it's only fitting that we close with prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who hears us, that you hear the prayers of your people. We thank you that we have access to you because of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. When we don't have the words to pray, when we don't know what to say, your spirit is interceding for us. Lord, we thank you for this time. I ask that you would speak to us even now, here in this moment. Lord, that you would convict us of the ways that we are seeking to live life apart from you in autonomy. Lord, I, I pray that you would be with us this morning. Lord, even as we scatter across the city, Lord, that we would see that we depend on you, whether we acknowledge it or not. Lord, help us to surrender. We can't do it apart from you. So thank you for the gift of your spirit. Amen.